Welcome to the Climate Torch Podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, startup founder, professor, impact banker, occasional monk, and founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, I launched this podcast to share positive stories of CEOs, founders, and investors tackling climate change. In these interviews, you'll learn about their high-impact companies and investment strategies, successes and failures, career paths, habits and routines for productivity and health, and recommendations on favorite books, podcasts, tools, and more. Among all the climate doom and gloom out there, I hope these discussions offer some light in the darkness and perhaps a model for what we should be passing on to the next generation. In other words, a climate torch. All right, let's get started. Okay, we're here with an old friend from the Duke world, Dr. Eric Toon, CTO and investment committee member at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. We were joking before hitting record. Uh, this would be a really easy chat, one of our, our normal brainstorms, but this time we just hit record. So nice to, nice to see you, man. It's great to see you too, Chris. Well, I, I usually ask <laughs> the first question of, so what do you guys do? But I, I feel like that, that is a little obvious. But for those that may be living under a large stone, certainly created through mineralization of carbon dioxide, <laughs> ha ha ha, what is Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Eric? Sure. So at 2000, in 2015, at the last uh, COP, COP in Paris, the leaders of the OECD world announced Mission Innovation, which was an incredibly ambitious plan to double their country's clean tech R&D expenditures by the end of the decade, by last year. At the same time and on the same stage, Bill Gates announced the formation of the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, a group of about 35 of the world's wealthiest and most influential individuals that was designed as a private sector counterpart to the public sector mission innovation. A year later, in the summer of 2016, that Bill announced that a subset of that group, about 20 of the members of the coalition, had come together to create Breakthrough Energy Ventures, a $1 billion clean tech fund that would invest in all aspects of technology relevant to the production of anthropogenic greenhouse gases. So we invest in five broad areas, electricity, transportation, buildings, manufacturing, and agriculture. So all of the areas that produce emissions. The idea was to create something that was different and purpose built specifically for clean tech and perhaps for tough tech more broadly. So of course, if we look back the first decade of this century saw clean tech 1.0 that was really i think pretty much an abject failure everyone's seen the mit report and somewhere between 25 and 50 billion dollars disappeared down raffles so the name of the game here was to try and do something different so for instance the fund is a 20-year fund instead of a 10-year fund to try and more closely approximate uh, the timeline of tough tech and the development of, of technologies and businesses in this space we have a very different group of people in here. We have a very, very, very technical organization. We have about 30 or so people at Breakthrough, depends a little bit on how you count. And I would say of that 30 people, over 20 have doctoral degrees in chemistry, math, physics, all branches of engineering. And the idea was that you need to bring a, a very technical group of people together to diligence these technologies. 
So that's what we do. We have sort of a, a very different uh, venture organization. First fund is fully deployed. We raised the second fund and started investing out of that at the beginning of this year. That was bigger than the first fund. We have about 80 companies uh, at this point. Global, we are invested across the planet and in all five of, of our areas. Well, exciting to see the evolution, you know, from a, an, an initiative to a fund and another fund and, and likely, you know, more capital to come given the opportunity set here. And I think it's safe to say that from the point that Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Ventures launched as a clean tech fund, you know, climate has become kind of mainstream or certainly it feels like it's become more mainstream. Can you comment about what that's meant for you know, pipeline, follow on capital, et cetera, over the last, what, you know, three, three, four years, whatever the, the time frame has been here, Aaron. It's absolutely true, Chris. I mean, the, the investors came together in 2016. We began investing out of this fund really in the spring or summer of 2017. And one of the initial investors who also invested in the second fund told me a while ago that if the conditions on the ground were in, in 2016 what they are today, they probably wouldn't have created this fund. Remember, at the time this fund was put together, and even at the time we started investing out of this fund, cleantech was still you know, radioactive, pun intended. No one wanted to be in this space. Everyone firmly believed that it simply wasn't a venturable space. And one of our stated goals and one of our prominent activities was to attract new capital to this space, right? And so our sort of modus operandus as we put deals together is we, we very rarely, if ever, do deals on our own. We always syndicate. And we were trying to pull uh, money from other funds that had not historically invested in this space, money that was on the sideline. You know, we were trying to build new coalitions build an ecosystem, attract more money to this space. Well, I don't know to what extent we were part of it, but we were more than successful. And as you know, there's been an absolutely extraordinary amount of money that has uh, entered this space over the last couple of years. And we see that in valuations, which have absolutely gone through the roof. I mentioned while we were chatting before we started recording that we had, I think, eight of our companies over the past six months that raised between 250 and 800 million dollars each. Uh, we have a company that's raising now that I think will probably raise over a billion dollars in this round. So there's an extraordinary amount of money that has entered this space. And it's, it's, it's gratifying to see. It obviously uh, presents some challenges, you know, in terms of valuations and things like that, but it, it, it is clearly needed. I would say that even at that level, you know, it is still a, a, a drop in the bucket. And I was reading some statistics just recently where where money in this whole space, in the in the whole sort of uh, sustainability space still accounts for single digit percentages of all venture and money directed towards energy in particular is way less than 1%. So it's gratifying to see the capital that's entered it entered the space. It's helped a number of our companies grow and expand and start to scale. But I would argue that the money is still way, way less than, than what's required in this space. Those are big and I think mostly exciting numbers. I think, you know, there's, there's certainly a part of me or you or others who hears those numbers and thinks, holy cow, can those valuations, of course, justify the kinds of returns that, that you all and others uh, need? I know you have an opinion on that. Is it along the lines of, look, this is still the first inning, right? I mean, th these are big problems. They're not going away anytime soon. And transformations of entire sectors, maybe all sectors of the economy, 
how would you address that uh, green elephant in the room, if you will, just um, frothiness, let's say? Well, you know, frothiness, you know, things come and things go and uh, to everything a season, right? And, you know, you like to imagine that the world has awakened to, to the magnitude of the challenge yep. and the severity of the challenge yep. uh, and, and the money that's entered the space now uh, reflects a growing awareness of that challenge. And you like to imagine that not only will that continue, uh, but it'll also grow. But I think there's something that that you really that's important to, to understand here, Chris. And I think it was one of the the sort of problems with clean tech 1.0. The the very hardest thing there is to do in the entire energy space is to try and wrap your head around scale. Right? We do energy at scales that dwarf any other human activity. And I've told you this little vignette before, I collect these little vignettes to, to try and impress on people scale. And you, you and I have had this conversation about the Hebron Ben Nevis oil field, which is one of the stories I use to, to try and impress on people what scale means in energy. The Hebron Ben Nevis oil field is a field off uh, the Eastern coast of Canada, off Labrador, that's being developed by ExxonMobil and others. It'll probably cost on the order of $4 billion to open that fund, and it'll probably spend another $3 billion over its lifetime operating that fund. Its operating lifetime is expected to be on the order of 30 years, which means that young men and women are being hired today who will spend their entire professional careers working on the Hebron Ben Nevis oil field. Over its lifetime, the Hebron Ben Nevis oil field is expected to produce about 750 million barrels of crude which is eight days of global supply, right? There's almost no way to imagine what scale means in these sectors. And these are not industries that scale the way that Google or Facebook does. They have mass, they have momentum, they are steel in the ground. And so building this out takes almost extraordinary amounts of money. Another mm -hmm. one that I saw a little while ago was that you know, I think everybody by now believes that we're, that air capture is going to have to be part of the solution. You know, if we want to stay under two degrees Celsius, if we're going to capture just 20% of our emissions by carbon capture, we need to build an industry five times larger than the global petrochemical industry, and we have less than 30 years to do it. So, you know, th that's why it's critical that money continue to enter this space and big institutional money that's capable of putting steel in the ground and building out the kind of infrastructure that's needed here. Yeah, so, so the analogy of it's the first inning doesn't even work, right? Not <laughs> even, not even. They can loosen up a little bit, that's yeah. right. <laughs> there you go. So you, you mentioned the single digit percentage of all, I think, venture money going into either, you know, clean tech, climate tech, or, or energy. And so that is to say, well, look, we, we need more capital. We still need more capital. How about the other side? So the, the, the deal flow, it feels like a, a lot of the deal flow is, is early and, and great. We need lots more kind of at-bats to, to get this right. How do you think about those two sides, amount of capital now, amount of capital in whatever, three, four years versus pipeline of good companies that can you know, receive the capital? So I have been extremely gratified by the deal flow, by the pipeline, the amount of stuff that's out there. I think that that deal flow has been out there for a good while. You know, remember I was at RPE at the very beginning of RPE, right? So in that spring of 2009, when I was there right at the very beginning, we had 3,600 applications in response to President Obama's very broad call for applications. That was 3,600 applications just from the United States, just from the United States, right? And, and so now we're, we're talking about, about globally. 
And so we've seen an enormous pipeline. Our SharePoint has thousands of companies on it. And, you know, those are companies that people have gone far enough with that somebody actually took the time to sit down, create a file, write some kind of a memo, put some kind of a content in it. So the, the pipeline is extraordinary. The pipeline is global. We're seeing a, a, an enormous number of, of innovative ideas come forward, big and small. So I, I feel really great about the pipeline, both quality well, and quantity. Well, that, that's exciting. And those are big numbers for sure. And uh, I'm, I may continue to, to, to send you a deal a week to add please to this. Please do, please do. We love it. Look at. We love it. Let's see. So I wrote down here, art versus science. You know, cer certainly for the earlier companies that sometimes when you know, we, we learn about the kinds of companies you invest in. It's like, is that, is that real? They're so, in, in a very exciting way, they're so different than what most of us think of as, as climate solutions. I also think, you know, a, a lot of us would like to believe, oh, well, making a decision to invest in a company, there are lots of spreadsheets and financial models involved. And, you know, yes, but can you just comment on kind of art slash gut slash something versus the, uh, look, left brain, the, the Excel spreadsheets, the, you, you know where I'm going, that, that calculus of making earlier stage investment decisions, given the big swings you guys are making. Sure. And what I would say is that Breakthrough Energy Ventures was deliberately created in a very different way than I would argue any other venture firm on earth, right? You do not find an, an Eric Toon running a venture fund, right? I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor, right? I'm a, I'm a scientist. These are not people that run venture funds, but I think there was a deep, deep conviction, certainly by Bill, but I think others in our, in, in our sphere, that to be successful in this space, you needed that kind of capability. And like, look, if we're, if we're honest here, um, the way tech investing works is I look at 50 opportunities, 43 of them I'm pretty sure aren't going to work. The other seven, I don't know. So we'll give them a little bit of time and a little bit of money and we'll see what happens. And that works fine in tech because a little bit of time is six months or a year and a little bit of money is $500,000. The problem that you have when you come to these kinds of spaces is that you know a little bit of time is five years and a little bit of money is $30 million. And so that sort of let's see what happens approach is just not going to be effective. And so you need a different group of people. Now, having said that, you know, you still realize that whatever plan you put down, you know, as Mike Tyson very famously said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And, right? and that is, of course, exactly what happens here. So we work out very careful plans that we know full well are never going to work the way that we wanted them to or imagine that they would. But what we got very good at doing at RPE that we've transitioned to breakthrough was this idea of working out milestones, right? So what we are going to do before we start in every project is there is going to be a set of quantitative milestones that get written down. So a milestone isn't write a report. A milestone isn't try this. A milestone, you know, isn't try that. A milestone is 7.6. That's a milestone, okay? And the most important part of that is when I show up to see how things are going, we're not going to spend the first half day arguing about whether or not we met our milestone, right? The milestone was 7.6. You got 7.3. You missed your milestone. Does that mean we're going to blow you up and cut you off? Absolutely not. We're going to sit and talk about what it means that you got 7.3 and 7.6. You know, maybe we still see 7.6. It's just going to take a little bit more. Maybe 7.6 was always the wrong milestone, and here's why, right? So, so those are the kinds of habits of mind that we bring to it. 
you've got to tackle big problems. And I think if you look at our portfolio, we've tackled the biggest problems that are out there. That is part of our half gigaton metric, which is to say that, you know, we're going after the biggest problems in climate and we'll invest in technologies that we believe have entitlement to at least half a gigaton per year of GHG equivalent emissions. So, you know, 1% of, of 2050 global emissions. But if you look at the things that we've gone after in agriculture, you know, we've, we've, we've gone after Haber-Bosch, you know, we've, we've, we've gone after cattle, both on the, the beef and dairy side of things. Um, we've gone after electricity generations. We're investors in Commonwealth fusion systems that, as everybody knows, had an incredibly exciting breakthrough uh, recently. We're going after hydrogen. We're, we're going after the very biggest problems that they are, and we're attracting the very best talents that we can to this. You know, we've got Rafi Garabedian, who ran First Solar, is building a new company in hydrogen right now. We've got J.B. Strobel, who ran batteries at, at Tesla, is now building a battery recycling company. So bringing the very best entrepreneurs on the face of the planet to the very biggest problems in clean tech is what we're doing. But we have a degree of technical rigor that I, I don't think has ever been matched in, in venture. Love it. Well, you know, it's, it's moments like this where a video version of this podcast would be needed to see, to see the enthusiasm, which, you, which listeners certainly hear, and, and the laughter and how fun it is to... to, to oh, my God, I've died and gone to heaven, Chris. This is, I can't believe somebody pays me to do this. You're here. You're here. Uh, you, you mentioned the greenhouse gas target, you know, really ambitious one that you will have. Maybe the first to set such a target. I know there are others now. Can you comment on how slash when you measure that target milestone, et cetera? It's a great question, Chris, because, you know, as, as we all know, figures lie and liars figure, right? And so if you tell people that uh, for us to invest in you, you have to have entitlement to half a, a gigaton per year, you know, what you usually discover next is that people show up and you discover that it, it's always 0.56. It's not, they, they never come in, they're not, you know, shameless enough to say it's exactly 0.5, it's always exactly right. 0.56. So usually the second half of the statement is you have to have entitlement to half a gigaton of CO2 equivalent GHG per year is, and if you need a spreadsheet to show me how you get there, don't bother, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea is we go after the biggest problems that are out there. So when we fund Pivot Bio, who's making an organism that displaces synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, Haber-Bosch is 2% of global emissions, right? Haber-Bosch is 2% of global emissions. So I don't need a spreadsheet to know that, you know, as Pivot goes on, I think Pivot's on a million acres this year, that they're absolutely moving towards that entitlement. You know, we know that we're not going to be able to make electric cars. We don't have enough lithium. We don't have enough cobalt and other metals. So uh, electrifying transportation, transportation, 16% of global emissions. You know, I, I don't need J.B. Strobel to show me how Redwood Materials is going to get to half a gigaton. So that's the first part of the answer, I would say, is you go after the, the biggest, hairiest problems that there are out there. But from a, a more sort of technical perspective, what goes into the investment memo that lives on the SharePoint, really what you say is, this is what you would have to believe for this company to mitigate half a gigaton per year. This is how big is a piece of the market it would have to capture. This is what the price point would have to be to capture that much of the market. And then, you know, the question is, do you believe those things are possible? So that is how we go after that half gigaton. Yeah, I think it's super helpful. Almost like 
even if you're wrong by a large margin, you still hit the target because the back of the envelope is so obvious. Absolutely. We all know what the, what the big levers are here, right? So those are the ones you go after. So you, you've mentioned some of your old portfolio companies, some of the 80 or so that you mentioned. I wonder if you could comment maybe on these, you've got these five sectors. Uh, I wonder, you know, ha have you seen more or, or wanted to invest more in certain sectors versus other based on, I don't know how the science is developing, you know, where deal flow is or where it's not. It, any surprises in kind of the portfolio allocation across those five sectors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there has. There's been a lot more in ag than I thought we would find. I mentioned Pivot. We've done a couple of things in synthetic meat, but there's been a lot of activity in, in that space. But you know, remember 40% of, of cattle is dairy, not beef. And dairy was a space that I thought was going to be a very, very, very difficult one. A little bit less than half of dairy is cheese. Cheese, of course, requires a protein called casein. Casein is a very difficult protein to make outside the cell. It's a natively denatured protein. It's heavily glycosylated. So you're not going to express this in E. coli or yeast or even CHO or something like that. And you kind of wonder, well, how in God's green earth are we ever going to make cheese that I can sell for a couple bucks a pound? Well, we've you know, got a, a wonderful woman, Maggie uh, Riccardi, who uh, discovered that you could express casein in soy. And so now at Nobel Foods, they are producing casein in soy to make cheese without cows. You know, milk, milk sold for four bucks a gallon, right? How in God's green earth are you going to make something as complex as milk? And there are lots of milk substitutes on the market, but it'd be nice to have actually milk. Well, we've got a couple of wonderful women right in Durham from Duke yep. uh, at, at Biomilk who discovered that you could take mammary epithelial cells and sustain those in a hollow fiber reactor and produce not a milk substitute, but produce milk. Um, they are absolutely making it for as infant formula and replacing uh, human breast milk at the moment, but you know it, it it can expand. So so I've been surprised by a number of what seemed to me almost intractable problems um, in agriculture. There are other spaces that we have yet to figure out a way forward, and I would say probably the biggest one, if you look at our portfolio, the biggest single gap in our portfolio is liquid fuels, right? Liquid fuels for transportation are a big, big deal. They're obviously an enormous contributor to emissions today. The, the big problem is they're also really good at what they do, right? I tell people all the time, we don't use gasoline and diesel as an energy storage medium for transportation because we're dumb. We use gasoline and diesel as an energy storage medium for transportation because if you gave a whole bunch of scientists and engineers an infinite amount of money and said, come up with the perfect energy storage medium for transportation, they'd come up with gasoline, right? It's incredibly energy dense. It's easy to haul around. It's safe. It, it has every conceivable attribute you would want except it produces CO2 and it produces CO2 in a way that's really impossible to capture at the tailpipe. You know, so I think that that liquid hydrocarbon fuels are going to be with us for a very long time. Uh, and, and they're extremely important. As you know, an enormous number of people have tried an enormous number of approaches to producing synthetic fuels, and none of those have been cost competitive. The challenge, you know, where I'm sort of currently hung up and stuck is we do do believe in air capture CO2. We do believe that that, that is going to uh, be deployed. We believe it's going to be cost effective, probably getting significantly under $100 a ton. The problem that you have is that at $100 a ton, air capture adds 87 cents to the cost of a gallon of gasoline. 
So uh, without question, the cheapest way that there is going to be to use liquid fuels for transportation is going to be to keep drilling stuff out of the ground the way we do now, burn it and do post-combustion air capture. So if you say people are going to do this, the cheapest way there is to do it, that's going to be the cheapest way to do it. I can virtually guarantee you that, right? That's even assuming oil at 60 or $70 a barrel. You can't make biofuels for anywhere anywhere close to that. And you know, remember that in the kingdom, they have oil that they can get out of the ground for four bucks a barrel, right? So that is a big gap, and, and that's the reason for the gap. There are a few other areas that, that we're, we're beginning to work on. You know, I think transmission in the grid is an area that hasn't received enough attention. Uh, I was in one of the papers yesterday, either the, the WAPO or the Times, there was a story about how a New York state is just realizing that there's no possible way it's going to be able to generate enough zero carbon power to charge EVs, right? And so, so thinking about, about the grid, not just generation, which we're certainly concerned about, but how you're going to move power around and how you're going to manage the grid, the grid of tomorrow is not going to be a bunch of poles and dumb wires. It's going to have to be much, much smarter than it is today. So there are a number of areas that, that we haven't done a lot in for a variety of reasons that we're, we're still working for. So yes, lots of surprises in both directions. Again, you get paid to do this? I know, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, Chris, it's crazy. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned our friends at Biomilk. I was at their grand opening for their new location in RTP. Yeah. And when I drove up to these new buildings focused on ag tech and cell base fill in the blank, my jaw just dropped. I was like, how do I, how do I not know that this is in my backyard? Right. I mean, anyway, so I th that, that was really exciting to see beyond the cool stuff they're doing, the traction, you know, they're getting as well. You talked about the different funds and raising more than the prior and so forth. Have you seen that the, the LPs, the investors in uh, these funds, are they changing? Is it the same investors re-upping? If so, kind of how and why and so forth, or might the investor base be changing for breakthrough? So the investor base definitely grew and grew fairly significantly, you know, from fund one to fund two. We had a number of new investors. So I'm not exactly sure who's been named publicly, so I need to be a little bit careful. But for instance, Abigail Johnson from Fidelity is on our board, so I know that she joined the board. So almost all the investors from fund one came back uh, to fund two, and then we had a number of, of new investors. Our investors are all high net worth individuals. We have made a strategic decision not to take money from institutions. There are a number of institutions, both corporations, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, thing like, things like that, that would very much like to come into this fund. And to date, for a variety of reasons, we have not taken money from institutional investors. I think that there's a chance that we will create opportunities for those kinds of, of actors to participate in important ways going forward. But to date, all of our investors are individuals. That's what I thought, but I just wanted to confirm, look, the investor base is growing for you guys, but it's kind of a microcosm for the investor base growing maybe overall with capital for, you know, for climate. If you, well, I was gonna say, if you had to guess, but you don't need to guess because you know the answer, Looking at where capital is available and where it's not for climate solutions, I'm thinking mostly about stage, but you can talk about sector as well. Where do you think the gaps are? I've got a few thoughts, but I think listeners would love to hear your thoughts on where the gaps are. Well, so I think that for quite some time that there has been a dearth of capital at the sort of level of scaling, 
right? I mean, and if you look at what it takes, you know, to to take these things to impactful solution, it, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to name names here, but you know, talking to the the founders and the management of a company that we're very interested in but did not invest in, you know, to ask them what's it going to cost you to build your first plant, and the answer is probably somewhere between one and one and a half billion. You know, okay. What's the nth plant that allows you to understand your ultimate cost entitlement? And the answer is, you know, probably five or six. All right. You know, where does seven and a half or eight billion dollars come from to figure out what their ultimate cost entitlement is, right? That's mm-hmm. not coming from venture. That is sure as hell not coming from venture. So venture can take things some part of the way, but there is another kind of capital that's required to sort of scale these things, right? And at a time and at a stage before it's really appropriate for private equity. You know, I think there there are particular situations where private equity can get involved early in a way that allows them to do what they do down the road. You know, and so we're seeing actors, for instance, like Macquarie, who uh, we work with pretty closely. And I think you're gonna see some of those firms generate venture funds that are designed to feed into you know, their private equity. Tomasic has been a co-investor with us on a number of deals that has the kinds of pockets that are needed. But we absolutely need more money that looks like the Macquarie's and the Tomasics of the world to help us get these things to a point where the pension funds can really get involved with that scale deployment. So, you know, I, I think if, if there's if there's a gap, that's where it is. You know, I think between organizations like ARPA-E, all the money that's in venture now, you know, we're probably pretty good, you know, all the way out to TRL 8 and 9, but there's still a long ways to go past TRL 8 and 9 before these things are really deployed in a meaningful fashion. And just for folks listening who may not know the TRL scale, technology readiness level, can you just kind of characterize, you know, eight and nine? I think they, they probably can intuit, but but how would you characterize levels eight and nine? Yeah, so technology readiness level is a is a scale that was originally created by NASA. It goes from one to nine, you know, where one is sort of an idea on a cocktail napkin and nine is is ready for, for deployment. And so at least historically, the federal government has uh, funded things through, you know, TRL four, maybe three, four, somewhere in around there. In the past, there were corporate actors who would pick things up and and take things forward. Of course, one of the big things we've seen over the last period of time is corporate R&D has just gone away, right? There are no Bell Labs anymore. There are, you know, even pharma. There's not very many pharmas that run R&D. So corporate R&D, corporate is, is all focused on quarter over quarter profits. A year, 18 months is way over the horizon for them now. And, and what that has done is left kind of a hole in the middle that organizations like ARPA-E and Venture are designed to fit, but it's it's a big valley of death and it's called a valley of death for a reason. But yes, JRL one to nine, one is a cocktail napkin, nine is ready for deployment. Well, that's helpful. And I think, you know, another word for the kind of, you know, scale up capital that you just referenced would be, uh, you know, folk, folk financing. Some folks have heard, you know, first of a kind financing. So I like what you said about 
some larger asset management slash PE shops creating venture arms in order to kind of control pipeline to get to a point where it can scale and take their larger dollars. What are your thoughts on some sort of, you know, blended capital structure for this, you know, first of a kind financing where a foundation, maybe creative government comes in to kind of take the whatever first 10, 20% where they're kind of first loss and then mainstream investors, you know, come in behind them, some equity, some some debt, but in kind of a, maybe a pooled fund or pooled vehicle, but but at least all the pieces are there. So it isn't like a, a deal by deal construction. Does that sound possible? Like too many ducks that don't speak the same, you know, language in the same pond, if you will? No, I think, I think it's absolutely possible. And I think that it's a combination of government and private sector actors that work in concert to achieve those kinds of things. You know, government is absolutely capable of paying down risk through things like tax credits and fiscal policy. The Department of Energy has the loan guarantee program. It's been run by Jigger Shaw at the moment, you know, and Jigger obviously has a, has a long history in the VC world, certainly understands this space. I know the loan guarantee, you know, turns into something that people like to throw darts at, but I would argue that if you look at the history of the loan guarantee program, you know, there's going to be failures. You know, I, I would argue that if there's, if you never have a failure, you're not taking enough risk, right? I mean, that's the purpose, you know, of these kinds of vehicles. And as I mentioned, you know, we have a great relationship with Macquarie. I have a standing call with some of the leadership at Macquarie every, every other week to work on things together uh, for exactly that reason. We've worked with, with other private equity shops. And I mentioned Tomasic, who's worked very closely with us. So I think there are all sorts of people out there who are thinking about doing exactly the kinds of, of things that you're talking about. Good. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> we just need 100 more. That's right. That's right. Uh, how about, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of folks listening, you know, are uh, entrepreneurs, founders, et cetera. Pretty obvious question. What, what advice might you give them? Not necessarily that they're seeking capital from breakthroughness, you know, per se, but, but advice to look, you know, whether it's the milestones you talked about as kind of gates to, to keep asking yes or no, or this direction or that direction. You've talked to hundreds or maybe thousands of entrepreneurs with in, in kind of deeper tech. I don't know, dot, dot, dot advice. That's a big question, but. Well, so, so I think that, you know, it's fun to sort of characterize, you know, the business model canvas and things like that. But it really, it works. I mean, the business model canvas works, right? And, and as you know, one of the most important boxes on the business model canvas is getting out there talking to customers. Hmm. And so creating milestones is, is all well and good. Creating the right milestones is the critical piece of it, right? And the way you create the right milestones is by talking to customers, right? To understand what's going to be relevant, what's going to be impactful. Talking to investors, right? What do you need to see before you would be willing to invest, right? So spending a lot of time on the phone, at meetings, getting to, to understand your customer, getting to understand the people who might fund things. So that part of it is absolutely critical. Making sure you understand your own strengths and weaknesses. That's a really, really, really hard thing to do. That is a hard thing to do, to look in the mirror and to be honest about, okay, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. And now here's how I'm going to build a team to make sure that I can spend my time doing what I do well. And I can have other people on my team who can do what they do well and to make sure that, that those, those things are complementary. So making sure that you get the right team and the right group of people 
around you. This is this is going to be hard, right? This is this is going to be hard. And so, you know, one of the things that I told them at Breakthrough, I think on my second interview was, I got a really strict no assholes policy, right? And so if that's going to be a problem, then we should, you know, shake hands and, and go our separate way. Because every time in my life I've ever said, yeah, I know he's a jerk, but he's really, really, really smart. Every single time I've said that, it was a mistake, hmm. right? Every single time. So when you're building your team, when you're bringing these people in, make sure that they're people that you want to get in a trench and go to war with, because you're going to have to. And then the other thing that I would say is right at this particular moment in time, there are an enormous number of resources out there to help young entrepreneurs, to help new entrepreneurs build things with non-dilutive capital. So obviously there's the Breakthrough Energy Fellows Program that's being run by Ashley Grosh, you know, at least for the time being on the nonprofit side of things that Breakthrough Energy, but there are so many others out there, you know, Cyclotron Road and its and its progenitors that Elon Gurr built first at LBNL and now he's expanded that across the country. Uh, Greentown Labs that Emily is running in Boston, you know, and there are there are versions of, of Cyclotron Road, of course, at Argonne National Labs and at Oak Ridge National Labs. There are so many of these programs out there. They are so impactful. They are so useful. Uh, they will help you build um, your team. They'll help you better understand yourself and your technology. And it's a non-dilutive resource. So, you know, why on, on, on earth wouldn't you take it? So those would be just a few nuggets I would throw out there. I love it. Juicy nuggets indeed. You, you referenced the business model canvas as in like, you know, for those listeners, capital B, capital M, capital C. You know, another variant, which I like, which maybe is, is more startup oriented is the lean canvas. So I think for those listening, one version of those may scratch the right itch for essentially a one-page business plan that should change frequently based on your feet on the ground talking to talking to potential customers. I think you also made a good point that look, you know, don't build the product, build your deck, spend X number of months, and then go talk to investors at the right stage. Start super early because look, you, you guys aren't looking for just transactions; you're looking for relationships that are multi-year, right? So get to know folks personally and, and for what they need to, to say yes. And I think you also maybe said it twice. That is to say, it's hard to know what you don't know. And I just, I just smile that as a newly minted PhD, I think I was so averse to saying, I don't know. We're beaten into saying what well, the answer is, right? But gosh, how refreshing to say, I don't know. I suck at the following, but guess what? My co-founders or my you know direct reports whatever they are great at it and they also love it which makes us absolutely absolutely such a relief all right so in, in our last minutes let's uh let's switch to you some right so folks have heard part of your path uh long time professor in chemistry uh at duke and then maybe i'll fill in one blank you know heading up a campus-wide entrepreneurship and innovation initiative super super fun the, the first They've also heard your your work at ARPA-E. Again, I believe the first director, correct, of ARPA-E? I was the second director, but I was the first person there. I was the first person there. Okay. Thinking about, as you look backwards, could there have been advice? You, you see what you see now, advice you might have passed on to your, your, your younger self. I know that's, that's a very different place you were in, perhaps 10, 10 years ago, thinking about ways to, look, ha have an impact or build a career or whatnot. Yeah, so so I would say the the first thing is find people who you trust and who care about you 
and listen to their advice. And so that happened to me twice early in my life at very particular times. You know, the first was as I was finishing my PhD, I was finishing my PhD. I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto in 1987, 88 was when I was wrapping up and I was done. I was done with school. I didn't want to be in school anymore. And so I actually interviewed for and was offered a job at Labatt's at the, the brewery uh, in London, Ontario. And it turns out they had a research lab and, and at least at that time they had a staff that, you know, you spend half your time working on things you wanted to work on, half your time working on problems uh, with the brewery, right? And so I was going to go do that. And my PhD advisor walked into the lab one day and sort of said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, Eric, and I've been thinking about, you know, you and what you're good at and whatnot. And, and I think the best thing for you to do would be to go to Boston and to postdoc for Professor Whitesides at Harvard. And I sort of said, no, that, that's not happening. I'm, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm leaving. And, and poor Brian couldn't believe that I was you know, doing this to his offer and was sort of furious with me. And so I eventually decided, yeah, okay, I, I'll go. And it changed my life. Going to Boston and working for George was one of those you know, Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass kind of moments for me. It, it changed everything about my world. And then the second time was, was when I was leaving, when I was finishing up at, in Boston and I did not want to go into academia. I, I wanted to go into industry. And George is the one who pushed me to, to go into academia. And I thought, well, I'll try it. And, and I came to Duke and, and that changed everything about my life as well and, and opened an, an enormous set of opportunities. So that's the first thing that I would say is, you know, find people who care about you and whom you trust and then listen to their advice, listen to their advice. That would be uh, thing number one. And then thing number two is do what you want to do. Don't ever do anything that you don't want to do. If you're not having fun, quit and go do something else. It, life is too short to do things you don't want to do. I followed my nose. I went to, to Washington to go to RPE and I sort of tell everybody that that was my midlife crisis that didn't involve divorce lawyers, right? And, and, and it absolutely was. It, it changed my life and led me in, in, in a whole different direction. So take chances, but do what you love to do. So those are the, the piece of advice I'd give. Well, those are great and personal, just what we're after here. Let's wrap, Eric, although I don't really want to, let's wrap because the clock's ticking. Thinking about maybe gaps in your pipeline or whatnot, I know lots of folks are already banging on your door, but where are the gaps and, and, and who do you want to hear from to fill those gaps in your kind of, look, complete your old mission? Well, you know, so, so I mentioned at least a few of those gaps, you know, very interested in the grid, very interested in transportation and in liquid fuels. There's still a lot to do in ag. We're very, very interested in, in CO2 removal and sequestration and not just direct air capture. You know, we're funders in uh, Pachama, a company that, that uses aerial approaches to measure forest growth. Uh, you know, there's lots of ways to fix carbon, right? So I think there's, there's still a lot to be done there. We're interested in materials and, and in fundamental materials, battery materials, uh, lightweight materials, hydrogen. We're extremely interested in we have multiple investments in that space. We're starting to look at, at plastics and those kinds of materials. Textiles is an area that we recently identified as, as having a huge carbon footprint. So very little work has been done. So we're always turning rocks over to see what we might find next. And we're finding lots and lots of things. Love it. Well, uh, look, we'll we'll call it here. And, and look, I, I, I look forward to our next in-person, oh my gosh, in-person 
coffee and brainstorm in Durham. Anyway, until then, Eric, we're rooting for your old success. Well, thanks very much, Chris, and thanks for all you do, and thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for joining us on the Climate Torch podcast. We appreciate your time and we know how valuable it is. If you want to learn more about climate finance, startups, productivity hacks, and occasional blurbs on things like stoicism or meditation or conscious leadership, all with attempts, underscore attempts, at humor and levity, then please consider subscribing to our weekly newsletter called Zero, which you'll find on Substack or the Entrepreneurs for Impact website. Or if you are a scale-up stage climate CEO or investor looking for a peer group to share best practices, expand your network, scale your business, and not be so lonely at the top, then check out our Climate Mastermind program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. Finally, if you want to draw more attention to world-changing climate CEOs, founders, and investors, then I encourage you to subscribe, follow, or rate this podcast. That, of course, makes it easier for new listeners to find and be inspired by these stories. All right, until next time, let's get back to launching ventures and growing businesses tackle climate change.